Listener production. Hello there, welcome to The Briefing. It has been a very big week in the controversial trans women in elite female sport issue. First, you had FINA, the world swimming body, coming down hard, effectively banning trans women from female sport. And then the International Rugby League was next, and it's expected athletics will follow. So, is it fair? Will an open category work? And will other sporting bodies move in this direction? There are a lot more people lobbying against transgender inclusion in sport than there actually are trans athletes trying to compete in sport. And I think that tells us a lot. That's Tracy Holmes. She's a veteran sports reporter. We'll speak to her and a trans rugby league player in our briefing as we explain these big decisions. First, Rihanna Patrick joins us on the briefing for the first time. Now, Rihanna, could you please stand up in front of the class and tell us a bit about yourself? Oh, look, I'm a journalist, broadcaster, and Tom, we knew each other in a former life. <laughs> Rihanna Patrick was one of the best uh, Triple J newsreaders to ever grace the microphone, and she's been doing lots of great stuff since then. And here we are, reunited in podcast land. And it's nice to be here with you. Great. All right. It is Thursday, June 23. Here are today's headlines. The East Coast energy market suspension is coming to an end and the Australian energy market operator is gradually handing back the market to generators over the next 24 hours. We have confidence that the market will be able to function. Well, we like to hear that, don't we? That's Emo CEO Daniel Westerman there. So this all comes after that crazy week last week where the regulator had to take control of the East Coast energy market after all that volatility, put the East Coast states at risk of blackout. And Emo has warned us, Rihanna, that it might not be over because there could be more challenges on the horizon. AMO has also committed to an investigation into what happened last week, and that's in addition to the ACCC investigation into energy supplies and whether they were gaming the system. Yeah, it was a crazy week. We were right on the brink of blackouts. People were being asked to turn down their heaters and (laughs) their lights at night, which is pretty crazy during a cold snap. Um, I think it also pushed forward that discussion about a capacity guarantee, which they're now going to work on over the next few years to help us I guess, transition smoothly to renewables rather than having these um, rocky moments where it all looks like it's going to fall apart. Yeah, and I think people are wondering mainly, how do I keep myself warm in the cold snap that we've been having? Will I turn on the light and will it work? And I think they're still trying to understand what this all means. And one of the deadliest earthquakes in decades has hit Afghanistan, killing at least 1,000 people and injuring more than 1,500. Yeah, the 6.1 magnitude tremor struck the country southeast in the early hours of yesterday morning. It was midnight when this quake struck. The kids and I screamed. One of our rooms was destroyed. Our neighbours screamed and we saw everyone's rooms. So this earthquake was felt as far as 500 kilometres away, which means... uh, It affected millions and millions of people in Pakistan, India, as well as Afghanistan. Yeah, and rescue efforts are underway, but many of the areas affected are remote and roads have been damaged due to this quake. Yeah, and the Taliban is appealing for help from the international community and Foreign Minister Penny Wong has tweeted that Australia will work with partners to respond to the crisis. In a major case for gig economy workers, the family of a delivery driver killed while on the job will receive more than $800,000 in compensation. Yeah, Shio Jun Chen was hit by a bus in Sydney in 2020 while working for Hungry Panda. And the Personal Injury Commission has found the 43-year-old died from injuries sustained in the course of his employment. 
Employers Mutual Limited, an insurance agent, agreed that Chen was an employee when he died. And the Transport Workers Union says this is the first case of its kind where a gig worker has been found to be an employee in relation to workers' compensation. Yeah, because basically all of these big uh, delivery companies have been trying to argue that all of these workers are contractors and they don't have to pay them entitlements. But because, you know, these guys riding these scooters and these bikes are putting themselves at such huge risk and so many of them have been injured and several have been killed, um, it really raises a question who's responsible for them. And in, yeah, many cases they've been denied entitlements, but this is a, a massive win, $800,000 for this family. And sounds like some of those grey areas are being ironed out at the moment for those that work in that economy. Yeah, and I wonder if having a Labor federal government will change anything in this space. This is obviously something Labor have been talking about for years, better protections for these workers. The Sydney Crown Casino has finally been given approval to operate two years after the huge tower building was finished. But the approval is conditional. They can't say they're suitable day one. We want to see them operate, particularly embedding in their culture the things they've told us they're going to do. That's Philip Crawford from the New South Wales Independent Liquor and Gaming Authority. And there's a pretty interesting backstory here, Rihanna. James Packer built this huge tower in Barangaroo, Sydney. It's, it's massive. Everyone here calls it the giant gherkin. So they finished it in 2020 and then they were about to open it um, soon after that. But this huge scandal erupted over money laundering and these Chinese gambling junkets. James Packer was hauled before a public inquiry. It was all done remotely. He was on his super yacht somewhere, but he didn't look very good and it was gruelling. They had to clean out the board and the senior executives. James Packer had to sell out of the company. He sold his 37% stake to Blackstone, a US investment firm. And they brought in all these new anti-money laundering measures, which involves limits on the cash that patrons can gamble with at certain tables, as well as uh, introducing an independent monitor. Yeah, and that conditional period could run anywhere from between 18 months and two years. Yeah, I guess they'll keep a close eye on them to see if they're they're doing the right thing. Um, But they've got a lot on the line there and they've already made huge changes. So you imagine they'd want to keep that casino open. A former Australian swim coach has been charged over the alleged sexual abuse of two girls in the 1970s. 76-year-old Dick Kane was arrested in Sydney yesterday and charged with nine offences. I want to stress that these allegations are very serious, but that the investigation remains ongoing. That's Police Acting Superintendent Chris Nicholson. Um, Dick Kane appeared in court yesterday afternoon And his wife said he's suffering terminal lung and throat cancer and only has six months to live. Kane was granted bail due to his medical condition. He has denied the allegations and will be back in court in August. Yeah, earlier this year, he was inducted into the Australian Marathon Swimming Hall of Fame. And now here he is before the courts on these shocking charges. He coached 11 world and Olympic champions. Rihanna, we're going to catch you tomorrow again on The Briefing. Thank you for your debut performance. 10 out of 10. Thank you. Sounds good. (laughs) Antoinette's about to join me for this look into transgender women in elite sport. Okay, so Antoinette Latouf is back with me now as we look at the transgender women in female sport issue and 
The tension has been building in this space for the last year at least, hasn't it? Yeah, Tom. So there was that new IOC framework and that came out in November and it left the inclusion of transgender women and men up to individual sporting codes. And there was, of course, that controversy around Leah Thomas in America, the transgender woman who won the 500-yard event at the National College Championships. And, of course, Catherine Deves, a failed Liberal candidate, she made it an election issue here in Australia. Yeah, and then this week, the big news from FINA and then the International Rugby League organisation, so Swimming and League, banning transgender women from competing in female events. In the case of FINA, that decision was for any person who transitioned male to female after puberty. Their scientific group ruled that they had an unfair physical advantage. The key to that argument was that they were placing fairness above inclusion at the elite level, but to try and achieve inclusion... They said they'll work towards starting an open category, Mm. the elite level, and support transgender women at amateur level. And now other codes are reviewing their policies. And we'll start this discussion by getting a personal reaction. Caroline Late transitioned from male to female at the age of 26, and she played women's rugby at an elite level, representing New South Wales. Caroline, thanks so much for joining us. What's your reaction to the International Rugby League decision? Look, I think it's reactionary and I think a lot of it's to do with Leah Thomas and FINA and I think International Rugby League have jumped on the back of that, on the bandwagon, and it is discriminatory. It's black and white, no shades of grey with that decision. So when you say it's too black and white, do you believe they should be making decisions more based on the individual and their strength and ability rather than um, this sort of blanket policy? Absolutely. It should be a case-by-case basis and um, it's a time factor thing too because when trans women transition, it can take two to three years before the hormones kick in. So I've always said that endurance sports, which is the first to go for trans women, should be maybe a one-year period and in strength-based sports, maybe a two-year period. And look, it's changed since when I transitioned. But, yeah, it definitely needs to be um, looked at under those sort of guidelines and circumstances. So you think FINA have got their science wrong? I think so, definitely, definitely. Um, And they're they're judging us, as again, once again, it's always where we're judged against um, males and male athletes. And we're not male athletes, trans women are women. Uh, We've done the feminising process through the hormones we take, through the feminising transition we've done. And um, any endocrinologist that works with us will tell you that. So let's talk about uh, your time playing rugby. So even though your teammates didn't know you were trans, you took out the club's women's in first grade best and fairest and you were the leading try scorer. Do you think you had an advantage because you transitioned a decade post-puberty or do you think it was a level playing field? Uh, Look, I definitely think it was a level playing field. I was, back then we went under the Harry Benjamin guidelines and that was a two-year period and you had to transition and live as a woman and be on hormones and back then you had to have surgery now that's not a requirement um, which I had all that I was six seven years post transition when I came back and played I also was um, nominated for the Sydney Morning Herald Women's Rugby Player of the Year awards but look I trained really hard and, and I don't see myself as having advantage the one thing I probably really really helped me was probably the fact that I'd played as a four-year-old, whereas a lot of women back then hadn't because there were no pathways and they couldn't play from that young age. Is there any way, though, in a contact sport like rugby league of getting around the bigger size, the the bone density and just size that comes with being a male that goes through puberty? Yeah, well, I mean, the bone density and all that, I mean, we do go through a um, different puberty and 
the science on that, on that is out too because as um, my good friend Kirsty Miller says, you know, like black athletes have a lot larger bone density than white athletes do. And um, so that's sort of negated that black women have a higher bone density. So that negates that argument. So Fina says they'll create or they're looking at creating an open category. Do you think that's a good solution for inclusion at the elite level? No trans woman's going to want to play in a third gender category. We see ourselves as women and um, no transition woman or no trans woman's going to want to play in that. So, um, well, But then what do you make of the fact that there are trans women like Caitlin Jenner, who was an Olympian, and Kate McGregor, who played first grade cricket here in Australia? They actually support these moves. Yeah, I mean, that's fine for them. Um, that's their right to support that. They transitioned very late in life, so if they'd have had the same experience as me, then maybe that they would think a little bit differently. So I think it's more a cultural thing that we need where people just get to know us. I think there's a lot of stigma around what a transgender person is. A lot of people don't even know, and I think that's the lack of education really hinders um, the fairness in this conversation. So if people got to know us and realise, you know, that um, I love my family, I love my animals, my dogs and cats, and, you know, we have to take the garbage out and... (laughs) pay the bills and do everything else that everyone has to do, then they realise we're just the same as everyone else. And I think that's where the big breakdown in communication comes from. That was Caroline Late, former rugby league representative player. So now let's get the bigger picture on how the sports world is handling this issue and what the ripple effects of the big decisions this week might be. Tracy Holmes is a sports journo who hosts the Ticket and ABC Sports podcast. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us. Do you think this week will go down in history as a major turning point in the debate around trans women in elite sport? Well, yes, it's definitely a major turning point for sure. Um, but uh, I, I don't think the story is over. I think it's a long way from over. And I think there will be legal challenges to this. We already know there was a legal challenge back in Canada in 2015. It went through to 2017. And that was from the Canadian transgender woman cyclist, Kristen Worley. Now, it is her actual case in the Human Rights Tribunal in Ontario that took the International Cycling Union to task. It also took the IOC policies to task, which is why the IOC Mm. has actually done a 180-degree pivot saying that it should be all about inclusion and that if you want to exclude anybody, it should be on a case-by-case basis and that proper scientific evidence needs to be brought in for you to be able to determine that somebody actually does have an unfair advantage. You can't just make a blanket decision like this. What we've seen with FINA, what we've seen with a number of others since, is that they've just put the blanket ban in, and um, I think you'll find that this may get them into legal trouble Mm -hmm. in certain jurisdictions. Uh, Australia might be one of them. So do you think an open category is fair and inclusive? It very much depends on on who you talk to. I think what we can say is that the blanket ban is exclusive. And I know that they've tried to sell this by saying effectively, uh, Eugenie Buckley, who's the CEO of Swimming in Australia, said that 99% of our sport is inclusive at Clubland and for Masters swimmers and everybody else effectively. But it's only when you get to that pinnacle and the very elite end, that this exclusion will be brought in. However, given the coverage and given the the wall-to-wall discussion about Leah Thomas, there are already stories of young people and old people competing in, you know, club land who now are too fearful to turn up at their club 
too fearful to continue competing in the sport that they love Mm. because the tone of the coverage has made them think, I'm not welcome. I'm not trying to get to the Olympic Games, but nevertheless, this is the tone of discussion that is happening around the world. Why would I turn up to my club this weekend? Because I'm not comfortable and I feel like I'm going to be targeted. When people talk about fairness in sport, they're looking at one thing and accentuating it instead of looking at all of the other details around it. So if you're talking about Leah Thomas, and I feel really bad talking about Leah Thomas because this is a policy based on Leah Thomas Mm. because who else is there? There is nobody else. So this reaction is just so completely overblown Mm. given the number of uh, transgender women who are at the elite level of sport. We've had one compete at the Olympics. And that was Laurel Hubbard in weightlifting from New Zealand, a very, very brave woman Mm. who finished last. She didn't manage one successful lift. We have no world champions who are transgender women. We have no Olympic champions. We have no world record holders. So, you know, when we're talking about fairness and, and unfairness, this is not relative to this discussion at the moment. It's almost as though it's um, a fear of opening the floodgates argument. We did some of the number crunching this morning based on ABS data and the trans community in Australia accounts for less than 0.001%, let alone um, within that community who can and wants to compete at an elite level. When you're talking about elite sport, it's like 1% of 1%. And so if you're talking about transgender women who are getting into sport. And let's not forget there's transgender men in sport where there's no problem. No one's talking about them. So it's just the female category. Um, You're talking about 1% of 1% of a very small proportion of the, the, the society anyway. And many of them, one of the most unrepresented groups in sport in Australia, and this is just at community level, is the transgender group. Because Look at this discussion that is happening around them. And so when we talk about fairness, it's like, well, fairness to who? So we had swimming, rugby league, um, athletics look like they're heading in the same direction. Do you think um, most of the major international sporting bodies will go the way that FINA has? Some will be keen to sort of jump on board very quickly because FINA is the one that is taking all the focus at the moment. So they can come along and say, yeah, me too without having to do the hard work in their own sport. So there might be a bit of that. And and we've seen that with International Rugby League. I mean, they've put a ban in place for no players. They don't have any at that level. (laughs) That's not to say they won't be in the future, but that's also not to say that they will automatically have an unfair advantage. There's a bit of Emperor's New Clothes happening in this. And there is a very, very strong lobby group And it's coordinated by a number of very influential and, let's say, really elite women athletes in the US. They have got funding. There's also been allegations of the Christian right involved in funding this. The facts we do know is that there are a lot more people lobbying against transgender inclusion in sport than there actually are trans athletes trying to compete in sport. And I think that tells us a lot. That was Tracy Holmes, ABC Sports Journal. Be really interesting to see, Antoinette, what the other big sporting codes do 
And also, as Tracy alluded to, whether there'll be any legal challenges to these policies. And Tom, I think context here is so important. Like when you pull all the debate and the emotions back and you actually look at the very small trans community and the even smaller, perhaps less than a handful of people in the trans community in elite sport, you do have to question some of the rhetoric, the amount of coverage and whether or not the case-by-case basis, which was already in place, is sufficient. Tomorrow on the briefing, if you've tried to get a passport lately, you're going to really feel this one. The lineups in some cities are absolutely huge outside the passport offices. We'll find out what's going on and how you can work the system. Listener.